Take Connor out to get his prescription, Pam. I can go get my car to save us some time. Are you sure you don't mind? Not at all. Better for Conrad to have someone with him while he's still groggy. Thank you, Dorothy, for all your help. My pleasure. I'm just happy you'll be okay. I need to run to the restroom and then I'll grab the car. Here you are, Mr. Bostron. Now make sure to take one of these twice a day until the swelling subsides. Thank you. Let's get home and put this whole ordeal behind us. Where's Dorothy? She had plenty of time to find her car. What's it been, 10, 15 minutes? Maybe she forgot where she parked it? I doubt it. Dorothy might be boring, but she's pretty sharp. Wait, is that her car? Yeah. Yeah, it is. She's not slowing down. Uh, Maybe she doesn't see us. Let's flag her down. I have a bad feeling. She's still coming in fast. Wait, Dorothy? Dorothy, where are you going? Dorothy! Dorothy! You're all mine, Dorothy. Obsession. A term often thrown around lightly in our time. We've all felt it in some form or another. For TV shows. For books. For significant others. For unsolved murders. True crime stories. Yes. But what happens when obsession is threatening? What happens when obsession becomes fatal? Dorothy Jane Scott was forced to face the horrible reality of dangerous obsession on May 28, 1980, when she disappeared from the University of California, Irvine Medical Center. Her abduction remains one of the most baffling mysteries in Orange County, and perhaps all of Southern California. The case is so unsettling, it's still frequently discussed to this day with frightening theories that keep true crime enthusiasts up at night. It is a tale that involves obsession, fear, love spider bites, mystery, pipes, and the horrors and cruelty of vicious, taunting phone calls. Dorothy disappeared as she lived, doing something to help someone. She spent these last hours taking a sick co-worker to the hospital after he had developed a rash and started feeling woozy at an after-hours employee meeting. Everything seemed routine and normal at the hospital until Dorothy went by herself to pick up her car from the lot. Her co-workers, Conrad Bostron and Pam Head, waited and waited, only to watch Dorothy's car speed past them and away into the night. She was taken from right under their noses. They watched in confusion as the car of a reserved, gentle woman violently sped away. Dorothy was never heard from again. This is Unsolved Murders, True Crime Stories. I'm your host, Carter Roy. And I'm your host, Wendy McKenzie. This is our first episode on the disappearance of Dorothy Jane Scott. If you like the show, we'd immensely appreciate if you leave a five-star review on your favorite podcast directory. And don't forget to subscribe while you're there, because a new episode comes out every Tuesday. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and on Twitter at Parcast Network. Due to the graphic nature of this murder case, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes dramatizations and discussions of murder and assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. Dorothy Jane Scott was about as straightforward as they come. A single mother of one, Dorothy split her time working as a secretary and taking care of her four-year-old son, Shanti. 
more generally known as Sean. During her working hours, she dropped Sean off at her parents' house, who watched him while she was at work. She was beautiful, religious, intelligent, loving, and economical. She was so personally frugal, she made her clothes from old curtains in order to afford things for her son. After her disappearance, her brother said Dorothy exemplified the word give. She'd just give and give and give, no matter what it cost her. Eventually, it would cost her more than she ever bargained for. And while her family sang her praises, her friends had some mixed things to say. Her social life was a bit stagnant, rarely going on dates, keeping a relatively close circle, opting to stay in with her son rather than go out and about. Right. While most of her friends called her kind and compassionate, some ventured so far as to suggest her virtuous countenance was more boring than anything else. Mm, as dull as a phone book, one friend said. Well, that sounds like a great friend. Yeah, but no matter what they thought of Dorothy, they all agreed she was reserved, genuine, and rarely broke from her daily routine out of respect for her son. Which makes the place where she worked seem out of place. Every time I come in this place, I'm so stoked it's still standing. Yeah, man, the police are on a manhunt. They come in here from time to time just to give us a once-over. Damn cops can't give us our one sanctuary of the 70s. Say, does that girl still work here? The one who stays in the back all the time? Yeah, she's still here. Can never figure out why a girl like that wants to hang around a place like this. Well, you let her know. We wouldn't mind having her at the register. <laughs> I'll let her know. But ten bucks on you striking out. I haven't seen her so much as bat her eyes at a fella since she started working here. That place was Swinger's Psych Shop and Custom John's Head Shop in Anaheim, California. Two stores jointly owned and operated. The latter was a head shop, a shop that sold marijuana paraphernalia, like pipes and bongs, and the former was a place to buy psychedelic posters. It was a major hotspot for Anaheim residents for most of the 1970s and even into the 80s, but by the 1980s, head shops like this had one foot out of the door. The decades coming war on drugs gave the stores a giant target sign. Perhaps that's why Dorothy's dad sold the business. That's right. Dorothy's dad, Jacob, used to own Swingers, but sold it to John Koisla, a man who fought hard against an Anaheim ordinance to regulate drug paraphernalia and was later arrested twice for cash laundering and tax evasion. Hmm. I thought it seemed weird that she would work there, but it makes sense with the family connection. It's definitely hard to imagine sweet, quiet do-gooder Dorothy hanging out at a spot walking a fine line of legality. Hmm, Definitely not where you would expect her to work. But that's just scratching the surface of the strange things surrounding this case. Because a sinister and mysterious person entered Dorothy's life just when she had a routine down to a science. This person chose Dorothy as his muse for a horrendous crime. So what was it about Dorothy that drew this kind of crime into her life? Did she have a terrible secret? Or was it just bad luck? Was there anything in Dorothy's life that infected her untouchable routine? Well, in fact, there was. And it started in early 1980. Hello? My dearest Dorothy, what shall I do with you? Who is this? In the early part of 1980, Dorothy began to receive sinister and mysterious anonymous calls. While she claimed she recognized the voice, she could never quite place it, and the calls continued. 
Hello? I'll always love you, Dorothy. I'll make it so one day you'll be mine. The calls flip-flop from violent threats to proclamations of adoration. On one call, he was confessing his love. The next, he was threatening to hurt her badly. Hello? I saw you talk to that man in the shop today. Is he a lover? If he is, he will suffer the same fate as you. He gave her specific details about her day, assuring her that he knew intimacies of her life that only someone stalking her could know. Then the calls got especially creepy. They weren't already? Hello? I got you a present, Dorothy. This is not funny. Tell me who this is. Jim? This is not a good joke, Jim. Look outside, Dorothy. I think you'll like it. What's this? The voice on the phone left a dead rose on her car windshield. So now we have an obsessive, inconsistent stalker with a fetish for sinister symbology. Sounds like we got the kidnapper. Yeah, we're pretty sure the voice on the phone is the kidnapper, especially when you hear the last one. Okay, now you're going to come my way. And when I get you alone, I will cut you up into bits so no one will ever find you. If I got a call like that, I'd certainly take some precautions. Dorothy thought so, too. She signed up for some karate classes and even looked into buying a gun. A gun? Yes, Mother. I'm really afraid. One day he's threatening to kill me. The next he's talking about the outfit I wore to work. He's watching me, and I feel so helpless. Do you think it's smart to have a gun around with Sean in the house? Sean is the reason I'm doing this. Well, please be careful. I swear, I recognize his voice. Sometimes I wonder if it's all a joke. Someone playing a sick prank on me. Who would do such a thing? I don't know. I just want it to all go away. Why don't you call the police? Yeah, why didn't Dorothy call the police after the scary phone calls? Nobody knows, but I guess she didn't take the threat seriously enough to consider it something she couldn't handle herself. In fact, many stockings go unreported. A Justice Department study in 2009 found that one in three cases of stalking are kept secret. The victim's reasoning often being that the police would not find the case important enough to be worth the trouble. Many stalkers are never even processed. The complications of their cases are too much for police to pinpoint a specific crime. California did not even come up with an anti-stalking statute until 1990. Mm, Sounds like the police might brush her off no matter how frantic she was. Even if Dorothy were to recognize her stalker's voice. Can we narrow the list of possible callers down at all? We can assume it wasn't someone she knew well, or else she would have had an easier time recognizing the voice. If it's just a stranger or a little-known acquaintance, what finally pushed them over the edge to kidnap Dorothy on the night of May 28th? And how far would he go once he finally had her? But before we jump into that, we have to ask why he was calling. Why Dorothy? Why now? We'll return to our story in just a moment from the ParCast Network. 
On Unsolved Murders, we explore the facts of real-life true crime cold cases. But if you're looking for more true crime cases with a bit of a twist, you should check out the ParCast original Female Criminals. When you think of a criminal, what do you picture? You picture a murderer, a gangster, a thief. I bet you didn't think it could be the mother around the corner or the little old lady next door. Female Criminals investigates the lives of the world's most notorious female felons and explores the stories behind their dangerous crimes. These criminals come in every form, from serial killers and assassins to bank robbers and drug lords. Female Criminals is like a mystery and crime documentary rolled into one. New episodes premiere every Wednesday. Follow Female Criminals free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. And now let's continue the story. She loves me. She loves me not. She loves me. She loves me not. She loves me. So often we think of love as beautiful, fate-driven, the culmination of mutual flirtation and dedicated romance. But sometimes even love takes on a sinister face. There are many psychological disorders involved with love that can range from mild infatuations to dangerous obsessions. Erotomania, the belief someone else is in love with you, especially pertains to celebrities. Hypersexuality, or addiction to either sex or love or both. Unrequited love. No explanation needed. But one condition in particular jumped out at us, one that seemed incredibly pertinent to Dorothy's case. That condition was called obsessive love disorder. Obsessive love is love that is so intense it causes delusions and irrational behavior. This can happen with a lover, friend, or even a complete stranger. The person who suffers from obsessive love will sacrifice their well-being in favor of being close to or around the object of their desires. They will act in an almost addicting way, finding any way to be close to or in contact with that person. Hmm, Like stalking and persistent phone calls. Exactly right. And the scariest part is, even the most minor interactions can trigger feelings of obsessive love. You mean behavior is misinterpreted? Yes. The most simple acts of kindness can trigger these obsessions. And as we know Dorothy to be the girl scout she was, her simple, natural altruism could have led to this onslaught of telephone calls. Hello, Dorothy. (sighs) Why you caught me off guard there? Gave me quite a scare. I don't get too many visitors back here where they keep me locked up. You're far too beautiful to keep locked up. Oh, well, aren't you the sweetest thing? Remind me of your name again, Mr. The simplest flirtation could have led this man to believe he and Dorothy had something much greater than they actually did. In fact, he eventually claimed that they were lovers. But we'll get to that part later. Obsessive love is often linked with schizophrenia and bipolar disorder. Which would explain the fluctuation between the calls expressing endearment and the ones threatening to cut her up into bits. A final but very important note to make is that those suffering from obsessive love feel a great need to control the lives of their love object. This explains why the killer ultimately turned to kidnapping and the horrifying way he behaved after Dorothy was last heard from. Wait! I thought we didn't know who this guy was. And we don't. But as his crime played out, his actions hinted at his unstable psychological state. 
We will get into the details of those actions later. First, let's revisit that fateful night and all the strange and unfortunate things that surrounded it. On the evening of Wednesday, May 28, 1980, the employees of Swinger's Psych Shop had a routine meeting. Dorothy, as expected, dropped her son Sean off at her parents' house to take care of him. And then went to the meeting. As you know, folks, we're on thin ice with these statutes against drug paraphernalia. But I think if we advertise the decorative side of our business, we could fly under the radar. Uh, they can't shut us down. They can make all the laws they want, but people won't stop smoking, Rafer. <laughs> we got enough potheads in L.A. to fund us for the next decade. Well, they might not be able to stop people from smoking, but they can certainly regulate how they're doing it. Conrad, are you all right? You're awfully fidgety. Uh, I'm fine. Just feel a little woozy. Well, feel free to step outside and get some fresh air anytime you need it. Conrad? What's that rash on your arm? I'm not sure. It wasn't there a few minutes ago. It looks like it's getting worse. Yeah, 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 I guess it does. We need to get him to the hospital. Sir, can we leave the meeting early to make sure he's alright? Absolutely. The UC Irvine Medical Center is the closest hospital. I'll go with you, Dorothy, in case he needs help walking inside. Thank you, Pam. And so the three of them left to head to the University of California Irvine Medical Center. Except Dorothy wanted to make a stop first. Your parents' house? Conrad's looking awful sick, Dorothy. Shouldn't we be getting in there as soon as possible? I just need to check in on my son to let him know that I'll be home later than originally planned. It's right up the street. Couldn't you just call them from the hospital? I'm sure we'll have the time while we wait for Conrad to get treated. It's all right, Pam. I think I can hold on for a few minutes. And so they stopped briefly at her parents' house, where Dorothy not only checked in on her son, but changed scarves from black to red before the trip to the hospital. Hmm. One outfit for work, one outfit for taking care of sick friends. It may sound unimportant, but the scarf comes into play later. When they wrapped up at Dorothy's parents, the three headed to the hospital. Once there, Bostron was given the diagnosis of a spider bite. A spider bite? Not just any spider bite but a black widow. Ah, now, it may be worth noting that while the spider bite diagnosis was the most likely scenario, it is sometimes code to call intravenous infections spider bites as a way to preserve a patient's anonymity. So we're thinking there's a chance hard drugs were involved. Uh, a very, very slim chance, though it could explain why they weren't in a rush to get to the hospital. And some of the strange inconsistencies of Pam and Conrad's story that we will discuss later. At the hospital, Pam and Dorothy kept each other company, maintaining polite small talk while perusing the hospital's magazines. All nurses to the nurses' station. <sighs> what a day. You're telling me. I thought it was going to be long when they told us about that night meeting. This place gives me the creeps. Something about hospitals makes me feel off. I'm just hoping that Conrad's okay, that they got the infection in time. Dorothy Jane, always the do-gooder. Now what's that supposed to mean? Oh, look, there's Conrad. I can't for the life of me figure out where I got that spider bite. Everything seems so blurry. He seems a little lightheaded still. Are you sure he's all right? He's all right. He just needs to pick up his prescription from the pharmacy. Around 11 p.m., Conrad was discharged from the hospital and given a prescription for his bite. Pam and Conrad waited in line to pick up his medicine, while Dorothy went to the restroom before heading out to retrieve her car. 
After they got his medicine, the two co-workers headed to the front of the hospital, expecting to find Dorothy, but she wasn't there. They went outside, but still, no sign of her. So they waited. And waited. And waited. Until... Dorothy! Dorothy! The car sped past them and into the night. Can you believe that? They both noticed that Dorothy's 1970 Toyota station wagon was coming in too fast. And its high beams were on, as if to prevent the two from seeing who was driving. The car drove right by the hospital entrance. They gave chase, but the vehicle was driving too fast as it turned out of the parking lot. Then the driver killed the lights and disappeared into the darkness. The length of time it took Dorothy to retrieve her car suggests she had some type of confrontation with the kidnapper. And the high beams seemed like a pretty clever way of hiding who was in the car. At first, Pam and Conrad weren't sure what to make of it. Perhaps Dorothy went home to her son. Maybe there was an emergency in her family. They decided to wait at the hospital to see if Dorothy were to show up again. It's strange that they didn't react with more immediacy, considering the strange behavior of the car and the amount of time it took Dorothy in the parking lot. Maybe they were nervous, but were hoping for the best and thought that the hospital was the best place to wait things out. And then an hour passed. And then two. And still no peep from Dorothy. So they called the police. We'll return to our story in just a moment. And now, back to Unsolved Murders. emergency response. Hi, uh, yes, we're at the hospital and our friend went missing. We saw her car drive away and we haven't heard anything from her in several hours. Did you see who was driving the vehicle? No, we couldn't get a good look because our lights were on. So you're calling the police because your friend left you behind at the hospital? No, it was all very strange. The car was going too fast. Dorothy, she wouldn't leave us here like this. I'm sure she just had something to do. I'll bet she turns up by morning. If not, give us a call then. But... Doesn't sound very professional. Mm, It wasn't. The police were convinced everything was all right, and they didn't look into the case at all after the initial call. So instead, Pam phoned Dorothy's parents to ask if she had come by to pick up Sean. She hadn't. Then at 4.30 the next morning... Dorothy's car was found burning in an alleyway about 10 miles south of the hospital in Santa Ana. Neither Dorothy nor the kidnapper were anywhere to be seen. The police were finally ready to take Dorothy's disappearance seriously, and they went to work. Except there wasn't a whole lot to work on. They first identified Dorothy's ex-husband as a suspect. It's always the scorned lover. Mm, Except he was with his family in Missouri, an impenetrable alibi. Then they went for the co-workers. Dorothy Scott? Sure I knew her. At least the basics. Yeah. Pretty thing. (laughs) Kept to herself. Dull as a phone book. Just sat in the back and got her work done. If that's a quality. Can't say a girl like that would have any type of enemies. I liked her. As much as you could like anyone who kept her nose that low. But once again, they came up empty. No co-workers seemed suspicious and Pam and Conrad's story checked out with the hospital. Though it seems likely that it could have been one of her co-workers. A secret admirer, maybe? How else would they know about the hospital trip? But apparently the authorities decided everyone seemed trustworthy enough to not look into any of them as a suspect. 
Then the police did something really strange when they went to Dorothy's family and asked them for a peculiar favor. We want to keep this under wraps so the kidnapper doesn't know we're out for him. That means no press, no interviews, no gossiping to friends. If the public gets a hold of this, there could be an outcry that obstructs justice. But what if somebody knows something? What if somebody saw her car drive by or saw Dorothy being taken somewhere against her will? We need to get her picture out there to get any information that we can. We feel that more often than not, that when the public gets involved, it's more of a nuisance than a help. This is my daughter we're talking about. I think a nuisance is worth working around if we can get any information at all. Mr. Scott, I know you're emotional right now, but I've worked countless kidnapping cases, and if we say it's best not to go to the media, then it's best not to go to the media. I can't believe this. I can't really believe it either. Wouldn't it help to get her name and photo out there for people who might be able to help? Maybe a hotel clerk saw them check in, or a car drove past something suspicious on the road. It certainly seems like a missed opportunity. It seems to add to a string of glaring mistakes by the police in this case. Their inability to take Pam and Conrad seriously, or identify a suspect, sure doesn't help their case. Apparently, they wanted to try and stay a step ahead of the perp and they wanted to avoid any false confessions that might slow down the investigations. But that doesn't seem to make much sense, considering how far behind they were at the start of the investigation. Perhaps they felt it to be a lost cause and wanted to save face by avoiding the media. Or maybe they knew more than they were letting on. Either way, it leaves one wondering what could have been if they reacted more quickly and thoroughly. Then perhaps things would have turned out differently for Dorothy Scott. What a scary and unsettling sequence of events. I feel like I need a review just to keep up. All right, well, the short of it, if it can be short, goes that sometime in the early half of 1980, Dorothy Jane Scott began receiving anonymous and mysterious calls from a man. Dorothy claimed that the voice seemed familiar, but she couldn't quite place it, suggesting a potential customer at the store or someone she knew as an acquaintance, but not a friend. The caller likely suffered from obsessive love, misinterpreting Dorothy's good-natured behavior as an act of desire and acting irrationally and inconsistently toward her. He knew her work schedule. He followed her day and night, and he relayed intimate details of her life. This suggests that it was someone local who had the time to follow her and had inside information on her schedule. The calls came to a climax on the night of May 28th, when Dorothy escorted her co-worker Conrad Bostron to the hospital for a black widow bite. They were accompanied by a third co-worker named Pam. The two claimed that Dorothy disappeared when she left to pull her car around. The lengthy time it took her to get her car suggested a struggle or confrontation. And the use of high beams in the parking lot probably meant that someone didn't want anyone to see who was in the vehicle. Either our kidnapper was driving or forcing Dorothy to drive. Then Pam and Conrad called the police, who brushed them off. They then checked in with Dorothy's parents. Something is bothering me about that, though. How would the two of them have the number of Dorothy's parents? Remember, this was 1980. They didn't have all their numbers stored and at the ready. Oh, right. Are we saying that their story is fabricated? Could they have had a part in Dorothy's disappearance? Well... Not everything adds up, but eyewitness memories are iffy at best. My money is that Pam believed everything she said, but the stress caused her to mix up some facts. 
Well, furthermore, something that will become increasingly frustrating in the story is that Pam's account is the only one we have to go by because she was the only one who spent the entire evening with Dorothy. So we will never know if she withheld important information or simply forgot some key components to things that happened that night. Hmm. Because of these inconsistencies, this story is particularly difficult to analyze. First, why did Dorothy feel the need to stop at her parents' house on the way to the hospital? especially if her co-worker had an unknown illness. This suggests that there could have possibly been something else going on. Involvement with drugs, or something else Conrad and Pam wouldn't want the police to know. Remember, these were employees of a head shop that sold drug paraphernalia, so it was definitely possible some illegal activity was happening. Then there's the extended period of time it took Dorothy to get to her car. It seems odd that Pam and Conrad would wait around for 10 to 20 minutes without thinking to go and check on the car. Was Conrad too sick to walk? Were they involved in some sort of foul play? Was their sense of time skewed in hindsight? Whatever it was, the lack of reasoning makes it very hard to trust Pam as a reliable narrator. But the mystery still remains. She took such a long amount of time to retrieve her car you think the kidnapper would want to flee the scene as soon as possible. Uh, well, remember the phone calls? Dorothy said she recognized her stalker's voice. So, if she knew him, she might have talked to him first, or at least not have been immediately suspicious. That would explain why nobody reported screaming or any sort of struggle in the parking lot. If Dorothy knew her stalker, she probably just attributed it to a chance encounter. Right. But it still doesn't explain why Pam and Conrad didn't just walk out to meet her. The final strange piece of their story is the two complacent hours they spent after Dorothy's car zoomed right past them. Instead of contacting the police, calling Dorothy's parents to ask if everything was okay, or even looking for a way to get home, they simply hung around the hospital. What should we do? You saw the way the car was driving. Something about it seemed... wrong. Maybe it's best to just wait it out? Uh, She might have something to do with her kid. Seems like she's always hurrying to help people. We could at least call the house, check in to see if they've heard anything. Uh, Probably best not to worry him. Wherever Dorothy went, she had her reasons. Let's just make sure we're here when she gets back. All right then. They claimed that they were waiting to see if Dorothy would come back. But if they thought it was an emergency with the son, couldn't they at least have called Dorothy's parents to see if anything was going on? And why wait at the hospital? Surely they could have taken a cab home and then checked to see if everything was all right. As it stands, this two-hour allotment of time is very suspicious. It is a lot of unaccounted for time at a very important juncture of the story. And that's the most difficult part. All these holes and questions will never be answered. The inconsistencies will never quite line up. After Dorothy disappeared, everything went silent. The police failed to produce a suspect, the media at the request of the police remained completely in the dark, and the Scots started losing faith that they would ever see their daughter again. Everything with Dorothy Jane Scott seemed to be at a standstill. A week passes, and then... Oh no, not the phone again. Hello? Are you related to Dorothy Scott? Yes, I am. I've got her. Our caller is back. 
with a message for Dorothy's parents and the people of Anaheim. We'll look into those calls and the rest of the baffling happenings of this case next week on Unsolved Murders. Don't forget to subscribe to Unsolved Murders on iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, or any other podcast directory. If you like what you hear, leave a five-star review or tell us what you think on social media. We are on Facebook and Instagram as at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. It seems simple, but it really helps our show. A new episode comes out every Tuesday, and next Tuesday we'll continue our investigation into the case of Dorothy Jane Scott. Thank you so much for listening. We'll see you next time. If we live till next time. Unsolved Murders True Crime Stories was created by Max Cutler and developed by Ron Cutler. It is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Ron Shapiro and Kenny Hobbs, with production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. Unsolved Murders is written by Drew Cole and stars Carter Roy and Wendy McKenzie. The amazing cast of voice actors includes, by alphabetical order, Mike Capozzi, Amber Connor, Harris Markson, Manu Narayan, Vanessa Richardson, and Brooklyn Sarver. <laughs>